Campfire Classics is a classic literature podcast. However, your hosts will occasionally use not-so-classy language and immature humor to describe very mature situations. As such, listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Heather Michelle Lawler. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. And get our cars towed to the middle of nowhere. Because <laughs> that's what we do! we normally record because of car troubles well, so yeah. that has just been on my mind fair enough i don't have a uh glass of wine instead i have Lacroix, um <laughs> because we're recording you know in the morning yep because i had to wake up at 7 30 in the morning and get the car towed to a dealership because the battery's dead so this is going to be an interesting energy bright shiny chipper sort of campfire classics we're so caffeinated i've had Whee! two cups of coffee already i'm already like to the i've had breakfast um yeah, you know good it's living the good. dream i like it both of us have a lot of auditions to work on later today so yeah. like we're on fire so it's, it's gonna be a busy day <laughs> busy monday work you work busy b uh, so, listener, you may have noticed a slight difference at the beginning of this episode. Uh, <laughs> that was finally. our, um, finally now, 52 episodes in, decided maybe a content warning would be a good idea. Because I say lots of bad words. <laughs> and Lina's not here with us today, so she can't even <laughs> meow out the worst of them. Um, what are you talking about? So, uh, uh, yeah, so we've, we've thrown up a content warning. So if you've gotten this far, you have already been warned that we occasionally say some immature shit. Um, <laughs> that said... I want you to do a completely edited version at one point, a completely uh, unnecessary editing of an episode. <laughs> like the way they do uh, the count. Oh, unnecessarily censored count? Yeah. Yeah. Like... <laughs> Just make it sound like I'm saying really horrible stuff. Choose, choose one word, whatever it is, and just bleep it out every time you say like it. Like the word and or um. Every time I say <laughs> Oh, no. Um, it would be it's nothing be but beep. Just <laughs> over and over again. <laughs> I had to throw it in there. We're talking about it. That's anyway. what I'll do. Every time you say um, I'll replace it with just without the meow. Without the meow. Great. I'll take that little clip that you're saying it just and I'll replace it. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, I'm so that's going to be amazing and horrible. <laughs> um anyway. <laughs> yes. Uh what what I was going to say, dear listener, was that uh so this is this is our first attempt at a content warning however we are still very much open to the idea of a listener friend or fan of the show uh helping us out and recording one of these for us so if you have the stuff to do a recording and would be interested in having your voice featured at the beginning of campfire classics uh you now have a template of sorts for what we're looking for go yeah, ahead do. and record something and send it our way and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll use it. If we have a bunch of submissions, we, we may cycle through different versions. Uh, but yeah, that would be fun. A sort of listener appreciation moment. 
Yeah. You can be part of the show. And if we get multiple, we might like edit them together. So like you get a line and somebody else gets a line. Oh, that's not a bad idea. Yeah, I, I kind of like, like that. Too. So if you listen to this and you have recording equipment of any kind, uh, you know, throw it down. Give it a shot. It'll be fun. Give it a shot. Uh, speaking of throwing it down, uh, we do have a promo. <laughs> I'm just, I, I think this is the new way we do it. I think this is the new way we do it because as I'm, the last couple of weeks, every time I'm getting ready to, my intro has always been, so do we have a promo this week? But you've just, you've just truncated that. So it's, it's your thing now. Um, Take well, it away. Well, I mean, I, I. You know me. I I don't deal with silence as well as you. <laughs> so it's when okay. I hear, there's no such thing as silence in this podcast. I edit it out. I know. Okay, so then you do it. No, it's too late. It's okay. too late. Well, we have a promo this week. <laughs> Ken, do you want to know what it is? Sure. It's for the insanely dangerous retro podcast. It's insanely dangerous and retro, and it's a podcast. This, Are you ready? I have no idea. Let's do it. Hello yet again, and welcome to the Insanely Dangerous Retro Pod Show. Size doesn't matter, it's what you do with it. Yes. Well, I mean, I'm off now because I've got to go and scream. Absolutely garbage. Paulie Shaw is somebody I don't really give a fuck about. He did kick me off the arse. <laughs> nice, nice argument there. Oh, shut up. Shut up, you tart. Oh, there's a finger. I, I almost urinated. Tune in next week because I just can't stop loving you guys. It's the Batman jeans. No more Andy Hinchcliffe. <laughs> I don't know. Why. I don't know. Why. <laughs> All right, I still have no idea what that podcast is about. Uh, I think I I I, uh, I have uh, checked out some of their information, and they just like they take a different thing, like. Uh, one of their episodes is about fast food in the UK in the 80s and 90s. So it's talking about like, so I think it's just, it's a really a, just a discussion um, with some research. Clearly they've done research because I was in the UK in the 90s and I know that we had to drive 25 minutes to get a McDonald's because <laughs> <laughs> the only thing on base on the Air Force base was Bur- Burger King and I hated Burger King. Burger King, if you want to sponsor us, we are available. Uh, but like... But yeah, they pick something. Uh, they do. They do an episode on Ario Speedwagon. <laughs> they just kind of dive in, just deep talk dive. Talk about Ario Speedwagon. Yeah, uh, right. the Bengals. Uh, they do the movie Basic Instinct at some point. So it, it's just anything of retro. Um, it's like no holds bar like discussion. Huh. Yeah. That I mean, they sound like they sound like amusing guys. Oh yeah, uh, uh, and, and I'm I'm fascinated based on that promo. So I'm definitely gonna go listen uh, probably this afternoon while I'm typing up some of the stuff I yeah. need or uploading videos or whatever. Uh, but I still I don't really have a sense of what it is. Yeah. So that I mean, in a way, that's good because you're like, okay, yeah, I have to listen to an episode yeah. now because this yeah, trailer gives thinking, me no I, sense of what I'm all, about to get into. All I know is that it's likely very funny. Yeah. Um, they do do an entire episode on who killed Kurt Cobain. Oh. Yeah. All right. That might be what I'm going that to listen to one. this afternoon. And you should follow that one by the episode about uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So they don't worry about giving their listeners whiplash. No. No. It's great. Um, which we certainly don't. Uh, <laughs> so, hell yeah. Uh, speaking Dave, of whiplash. Speaking of whiplash. I, I, got, I got nothing. Oh my God, is the title of the story this week. 
Whiplash? No, it's not. <laughs> I got nothing. I got nothing, nothing, nothing. If I don't have you, insanely dangerous retro podcast. <laughs> Sorry, Whitney Houston. That was that, nice. No, that was good. That was a retro um, fail. <laughs> it was a little bit Eric Cartman does. Whitney I Houston. have nothing, nothing, yeah, nothing. So, for anyone for whom this might be your first time listening to us. Um, welcome to the party. Good this morning, is our campers. 52nd episode. How you doing? Uh, what we do is every week we take turns selecting a short story from a classic author, uh, do a little bit of research on the author, and then hand the story sight unseen to the other host, and we try to struggle our way through absurd language, ridiculous characters, and occasional casual sexism and racism. Um, Mm -hmm. And this week, Heather has chosen a story for me. Yeah. So uh, we have not done this author. So new author, which is exciting. It's amazing. We've done 52 episodes and we're not even close. Like, like we've only overlapped on a few people and they're like our muses. But like other than that. So this week you will be reading a story by Bret Hart. Like the professional wrestler? No. Well, that. I love that you knew that because I have no idea. But when I was on the Wikipedia page doing research, they're like, this is Bret Hart's page for the uh, American writer. If you're looking for Canadian wrestler Bret Hart. Bret the Hitman Hart. Follow this link. And I went, what? I love that that's the first thing you said because I was like, there's a wrestler named Bret Hart? That's yeah, funny. Yeah, well, and he's he was he was a wrestler like... Like in the Hulk Hogan era? Or yeah, something? Uh, like back When in, you said his name, his full name, I was Brett like... Bret the Hitman Hart, oh that yeah. That sounds like a Hulk Hogan era. Yeah, he's he's a guy that the Dangerously Retro Pod Show would probably would probably cover. really like. Okay, well, cool. Well, there you go, guys. Um, So, Bret Hart uh, is American. He was born in uh, Albany, New York on August 25th. 1836, so long time ago. When he was young, his father, Henry, changed the family name from Hart to Hart with an E. So it was H-A-R-T, and then he changed it to H-A-R-T-E because they were Orthodox Jewish immigrants. So they wanted to appear more Anglo, more Western. Right, right. Yeah. plus he didn't want his family to keep getting confused with Brett the Hitman Hart. Yes, he, he was also a future teller. Uh, what's, what's a future teller? Fortune, Fortune teller? teller? A psychic? psychic. <laughs> Words are hard. It's morning. English uh, is weird. English is weird. Uh, but his father, who came over, uh, was a merchant, and he became one of the founders of the New York City Stock Exchange. Oh, so that's fun. Um, Hart, Brett Hart, France, his full name is Francis Brett Hart, by the way. He changed his name to Brett Hart um, when he started writing. Um, he took Francis away. So um, I will continue to call him Francis Brett Hart until he changes until his he name. Until he changes his name. So Francis loved books and writing from a very early age. And he actually published his first work at age 11, which was a satirical poem, which is what he became known for. And it was called Autumn Musings. But it has been lost to time. Like it was published. But the best thing, well, not the best thing. Rather than attracting praise from his family, the poem garnered ridicule. As an adult, he recalled to a friend, quote, such a shock was their ridicule to me that I wonder that I ever wrote another line of verse. Huh. And I'm like, rude family. Like, 
Well, one of the things one of the things that I have heard talked about in regards to family support of artists is how often artists that were not supported by their family from the outset say, oh, God, it was the best thing they could have done for me. Because it made me work harder. Because it, yeah. it made me work harder and it made me realize that um, it made me realize early on how hard this was going to be. And so by the time I was an adult, I was prepared for it. And it also like made them go, is this really something I want to do or is it just something I happen to be good at according to other people? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So, but he wrote that he uh, only went to school until he was 13 which is funny because he ended up being a professor at colleges <laughs> <laughs> later down the line. Um, but yes, he later and after he finished schooling and um, before he moved out to California, he dropped Francis and changed Brett to Brett with one T. Oh, so he pretty much. So now right. now his last name has been changed because his dad changed their last name. He has dropped his first name and he's going by his middle name, but he has changed the spelling. So. All right. There he is. All right. He could have been Fran. Fran Hart. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a like sitcom. <laughs> what was she to do? Where was she to go? She was out on her fanny. <laughs> <laughs> the nanny, but, which is on HBO right now. Really? Um, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so he moved to California in 1853 and spent part of his life in a mining camp. I was going to say, this 1853, the that's gold the gold rush. rush. This is during the gold rush. Uh, he stayed near Humboldt Bay, and uh, this was the setting of the Wild West, and this was inspired most of his works. Awesome. So in 1857, he became employed by the Northern Californian, which was kind of like a uh, small town mining newspaper. Uh now this is where it gets fun so we were saying earlier like we run into issues where people are racist and sexist he is his support of native americans and mexicans was unpopular (laughs) and that drove him out of the rural community so and it comes up later again so he was super like proactive and like equal rights and like we shouldn't be taking these people's lands and like equal pay and all that stuff so he wrote an editorial after there was a massacre of Native Americans in 1860, um, and he was advised to leave town. <laughs> we don't like your kind. We here. don't like we don't like your Yankee kind. So he decided to move to San Francisco, which was still growing and still building at the time, but it was a city, you know. And uh, published his first work of condensed novels. Uh, when he moved back, he married uh, his wife, Anna Griswold, which is funny because we were just talking about the National Lampoon's Christmas the Vacation. Griswolds. They're the Griswolds. So there we go. It's one of those little things that happens often on this podcast where we're like, well, it didn't mean for that to happen. Um, from the start, things were rocky. Some suggest that she was handicapped by extreme jealousy. While one of his biographers said that she was almost impossible to live with. Fun fact, the couple lived together 16 years of the 40 years they were married. Ooh, okay. So they never got divorced and they had children. They just... They just really didn't like each other. So uh, he continued to work and he also became the editor of The Californian. So he was making making the way and he engaged mark twain to write for them oh early in his career so mark twain later recalled that as an editor hart was 
a new and fresh spirited note that rose above the orchestra's mumbling confusion and was recognizable as music. <laughs> it's high praise. <laughs> it is. Mark Twain had, um, we'll say, unflinching opinions about everyone else who was writing. Oh, wait for it. <laughs> so... Hart was like all over the place. Like he did everything. So he just kind of kept bouncing around. Um, he became the editor of another uh, magazine, the Overland Monthly, where he was encouraged to write about California. He wrote a story called The Luck of Roaring Camp, which propelled him to nationwide fame. So Hart's fame increased with the publication of a satirical poem, just like his childhood, called Plain Language from Truthful James. Now remember, satirical. This was in September of 1870. The poem became republished in a ton of other magazines, including New York Evening Post, New York Tribune, Boston Evening Transcript, blah, 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 like all over the country. And it was starting to be printed by its alternate title, leaving out the original title, and the alternate title was The Heathen Chinese. Hart was pissed to discover that the popularity of the poem, which he had written to criticize the prevalence of anti-Chinese sentiment in America among the white population, especially in California, was largely the result of it being taken literally by the very people he was lampooning who completely misconstrued it. When you're too dim to get that the joke is about you. So he's the original Borowitz report or onion where people don't understand that it's. It's satire. It's satire, you fucks. Like. Although to to like in fairness, there have been times in the last couple of years when I have looked at a headline And had to do some research before realizing that it came from The Onion or The Borowitz Report because they don't seem that far off from Things real that news. were happening. Similarly, clearly there were enough voices that were actually thinking the way he was satirizing that people went, oh yeah, I like this oh, guy. Oh, this guy's my favorite. Yeah, I mean, it's... Oh, shit. Yep. So, so that... Between the other story that he wrote, Luck of Roaring Camp, and that, I mean, he was propelled to, like, international fame. Too bad one of them was half the fame came because people are stupid. Didn't understand it. But he um, was assigned with the Atlantic Monthly at $10,000 for 12 stories in a year, which was the highest figure offered to an American writer of that time. Wow. So he left for the East and never returned to the West. Now, he arrived, realized what happened with the original story, couldn't continue to, like, he didn't know how to write anymore because, like, he's like, well, people don't get this, and I don't want to be known as the racist because he wasn't. He was speaking against that over and over and over again. And so by the time 1872 hit, he lost his contract, and for, like, the next few years, he was, like, living paycheck to paycheck, doing odd jobs, doing all this stuff. Um, he rose up again in like a last ditch effort. He reached out to Mark Twain, his pal, um, and asked if he could collaborate with him on a play based on the plain language of truthful James. So, uh, they wrote this play together because the anti-Chinese sentiment was even stronger. Um, 
and the play was only performed for a couple months because it just couldn't find an audience, which also drove a big wedge between him and Mark Twain, between Mr. Hart and Mr. Twain. So uh, he ended up, the year after the play closed in 1877, he was appointed, he replied and was appointed as the United States Council in Germany. So kind of like an ambassador. Um, And so he got this appointment and Mark Twain decided he wanted to write a letter to compel them not to let him do this. And this is what he said, quote, Hart is a liar, a thief, a swindler, a snob, a sot, a sponge, a coward, a jerry diddler, and he is brimful of treachery. <laughs> to send this nasty creature to puke upon the American name in a foreign land is too much. I think he had opinions. <laughs> Hart's in good company. Twain also had nasty stuff to say about Jane Austen. Oh, he hates every he like, hates everybody. Yeah. Right, but I'm just like yeah. he's he is well known for having had very nasty, vindictive shit to say about Jane Austen. Yeah, who apparently he read almost every year. So, well, that's right because we he like had a crush on everyone's like I think he just had a crush on yeah. her. Maybe he had a thing for Mr. Hart. Who knows? Um, but anyway, they ignored that letter and sent him to Germany. So he actually spent the last 30 years of his life in Europe. Oh. He never came back. He moved. Uh, he repos- Fair enough. America wasn't nice to him. Yeah. He was a UN ambassador for Germany and um, a couple other countries at the time. But then he eventually moved to London in 1885. He died in Chamberley. Ch- yeah. Camberley. Camberley. England on 1802 of throat cancer. Um, so 1902. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he did not reverse. Uh, yeah. He died in Chamber, uh, Chamber, Camberley. I'm so glad you're reading today. <laughs> he died in Chamberley, England in 1902 of throat cancer um, and is buried at Frimley uh, Cemetery somewhere near there. So today you will be reading the short story Tennessee's Partner, which is one of his most famous. It was also a, turned into a movie in 1955 with John Payne and Ronald Reagan. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Also, the musical Paint Your Wagon is based on this story. Oh, okay. But yeah, so we're going to read Tennessee's Partner. All right. Let's uh, start the fire. Let's do it. Tennessee Partner by Bret Hart, not the hitman, starring Ronald Reagan. No. I do not think that we ever knew his real name. Our ignorance of it certainly never gave us any social inconvenience, for at Sandy Bar in 1854, most men were christened anew. Sometimes these appellatives were derived from some distinctiveness of dress, as in the the case of... What the hell is an appellative? A nickname. Oh, I've never heard that phrase, so there you go. Fun facts. Sorry, I could let you look that up and give a definition no, if you okay. want. No, that's okay. I trust you. You read it like you knew what you were talking about. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, sometimes these appellatives were derived from some distinctiveness of dress, as in the case of 
Dungaree Jack. Dungaree Jack! Or from some peculiarity of habit as shown in Celeritus Bill. I don't know Celeritus. Okay, we look it up Celeritus because I'm hoping it means like slutty or something. <laughs> slutty, slutty Bill. Bill. <laughs> okay. So Celeritus is a noun for sodium bicarbonate, which is baking powder. Um, I'm going to guess there's another definition. Nope. Oh. There is isn't. I'm going to keep reading. Okay. Or from some peculiarity of habit as shown in Celeritus Bill, so called for an undue proportion of that chemical in his bread. Oh. So, so he like used a lot of sodium bicarbonate. When he made when bread. When he made bread. So it had a very distinct taste. Yep. So too much baking soda in his bread. Yep. All right. Or for some unlucky slip as exhibited in The Iron Pirate, a mild, inoffensive man who earned that baleful title by his unfortunate mispronunciation of the term Iron Pyrites. <laughs> I want my nickname to be The Iron Pirate. I mispronounce tons of words. <laughs> So don't call me an idiot. Just come up with a fun nickname. Like, <laughs> Isn't your nickname already McPirate? I know I mean, it is. <laughs> I no. think you've done all right. Yeah. Perhaps this may have been the beginning of a rude heraldry, but I am constrained to think that it was because a man's real name in that day rested solely upon his own unsupported statement. Call yourself Clifford, do you? said Boston, addressing a timid newcomer with infinite scorn. Hell is full of such Cliffords. <laughs> he then introduced the unfortunate man whose name happened to be really Clifford <laughs> as J. Bird Charlie, an unhallowed inspiration of the moment that clung to him ever after. So I love that he talks about how uh, you just trust a man to tell you his real name and Bret Hart's entire name is of his it own making. It is a fallacy. That's true. I could I could say I'm uh what was uh, what was Phoebe's name in uh Regina Falange? <laughs> well, Regina Falange when she actually changed her name something banana oh, hammock. Oh, yes. Uh Princess Consuela Banana Hammock. Princess Consuela Banana Hammock. <laughs> and then Paul Rudd was like I'm shit, shit bag shit or bag. something. <laughs> yep. Live your life, everyone. Live by the name you want to be called. <laughs> Even if that name is Stormageddon. But to return to Tennessee's partner, oh, yeah. whom we never knew by any other than this relative title, that he had ever existed as a separate and distinct individuality, we only learned later. It seems that in 1853, he left Poker Flat to go to San Francisco, ostensibly to procure a wife. He never <laughs> got any further than Stockton. At that place, he was attracted by a young person who waited upon the table at the hotel where he took his meals. One morning, he said something to her which caused her to smile, not unkindly, to somewhat coquettishly break a plate of toast over his upturned, serious, simple face and to retreat to the kitchen. She whacked him on the face with the plate? Yep. 
okay, I like her. <laughs> She's like, don't flirt with me. I'm working. Fuck off. He followed her oh. and emerged a few moments later covered with more toast <laughs> and victory. Wait. She she was like, I'm just going to throw a toast at you. And then maybe that was like the thing at the time. <laughs> that day week, they were married by a justice of the peace and returned to Poker Flat. I am aware that something more might be made of this episode, but I prefer to tell it as it was current at Sandy Bar in the gulches and bar rooms where all sentiment was modified by a strong sense of humor. <laughs> their married felicity but little is known perhaps for the reason that tennessee then living with his partner one day took occasion to say something to the bride on his own account at which it is said she smiled not unkindly and chastely retreated this time as far as marysville where tennessee followed her and where they went to housekeeping without the aid of a justice of the peace Oh, Tennessee's naughty. All right, so there's the scandal. Some scandal happened. Tennessee's partner took the loss of his wife simply and seriously, as was his fashion. But to everybody's surprise, when Tennessee one day returned from Marysville without his partner's wife, she having smiled and retreated with somebody else, Tennessee's partner was the first man to shake his hand and greet him with affection. The boys who had gathered in the canyon to see the shooting were naturally indignant. Their indignation might have found vent in sarcasm, but for a certain look in Tennessee's partner's eye that indicated a lack of humorous appreciation. In fact, he was a grave man with a steady application to practical detail, which was unpleasant in a difficulty. <laughs> So people showed up expecting a duel. Yeah. And instead they <laughs> were just like, like, hey, good to see you. I'm Welcome good. Back. He's like, thanks for taking her away. Where, who is she with now? My wife ran off with you, didn't she? Yeah, she did. How's yeah. she doing? She ran off again. Uh, all right. Okay, cool. We're good then. <laughs> Meanwhile, a popular feeling against Tennessee had grown up on the bar. He was known to be a gambler. He was suspected to be a thief. In these suspicions... Tennessee's partner was equally compromised. His continued intimacy with Tennessee after the affair above quoted could only be accounted for on the hypothesis of a co-partnership of crime. Or love. At last, Tennessee's guilt became flagrant. One day, he overtook a stranger on his way to Red Dog. The stranger afterward related that Tennessee beguiled the time with interesting anecdote and reminiscence, but illogically concluded the interview with the following words. And now, young man, I'll trouble you for your knife, your pistol, and your money. You see, your weapons might get you into trouble at Red Dog and your money's a temptation to the evilly disposed. I, I think you said your address was San Francisco. I shall endeavor to call. Uh-huh. It may be stated here that Tennessee had a fine flow of humor which no business preoccupation could wholly subdue. <laughs> 
also, they're saying you can't carry weapons and money to this tiny town. They'll prob you'll either gamble it, though someone will swindle you out of it, or you will get into a knife fight. And there are criminals in town, so let me take your money. I'll hold on to it for you. You said you're from uh, San Francisco? Yeah, I'll send I'll it off to you. I'll take it to San Francisco, don't worry, and then never seen again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's a smooth move. I really want this to be Nathan Fillion. It, I mean, it does. It's the Wild West, so yep. it's very Firefly. Like It smacks it's, of Captain Malcolm yeah, Reynolds. Yeah. This exploit was his last. Red Dog and Sandy Barr made common cause against the highwaymen. Tennessee was hunted in very much the same fashion as his prototype, the grizzly. As the, the grizzly? <laughs> I don't, you don't fuck with that guy. <laughs> uh, well, it's lowercase, so I assume they're saying he was hunted like a bear. Oh, damn. I thought the grizzly was the last guy they hunted. <laughs> oh, shit. That's, yep. Oh, man. Wild West, man. (laughs) Don't mess around. As the toils closed around him, he made a desperate dash through the bar, emptying his revolver at the crowd before the arcade saloon and so on up Grizzly Canyon. But at its further extremity, he was stopped by a small man on a gray horse. The men looked at each other a moment in silence. Both were fearless, both self-possessed and independent, and both types of a civilization that in the 17th century would have been called heroic, but in the 19th, simply reckless. (laughs) They were gallant back then. Now we just call them morons. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny how often heroism and stupidity overlap. Kind of go together. <laughs> He's so brave. Is he, though? Is he? Or is, is he, he just brave? have anger issues? Or is he just a little dim? Or just a little crazy? What have you got there? I call, said Tennessee, quietly. Two bowers and an ace said the stranger as quietly, showing two revolvers and his bowie knife. (laughs) That takes me, returned Tennessee, and with his gambler's epigram, he threw away his useless pistol and rode back with his captor. Well, that's a classy little showdown. That's a classy-ass showdown. It's like, what's in your hand? What, what, What you got? Pair of aces? Well, shit, I'm beat. I'm done. Take me with you. (laughs) It was a warm night. The cool breeze, which usually sprang up with the going down of the sun behind the chaparral-crested mountains, was that evening withheld from Sandy Bar. Chaparral? Chaparral, a shrubland plant community found primarily in the United States of California, southern Oregon, and in the northern portions of Baja, California. Uh, so it is a kind of uh, foliage. Oh, all right. So he's it's, just describing the the shrubs and trees. It's like tree-covered mountains. Great. Um, a specific kind. Yep. The cool breeze, which usually sprang up with the going down of the sun behind the tree-covered mountain. Evergreens, specifically. Evening, They're evergreens. Cool. Uh, was that evening withheld from Sandy Bar? The little canyon was stifling with heated resinous odors. Ew. (laughs) And the decaying driftwood on the bar sent forth faint, sickening exultations. Uh, As someone with really sensitive 
sense of smell that like back in the day everything's, everything's just hot and smells like body odor oh god and like dead things and no yeah it's just no nobody washes themselves properly it's yep <laughs> The feverishness of day and its fierce passions still filled the camp. Lights moved restlessly along the bank of the river, striking no answering reflection from its tawny current. Against the blackness of the pines, the windows of the old loft above the express office stood out staringly bright. And through their curtainless panes, the loungers below could see the forms of those who were even then deciding the fate of Tennessee. And above all this, etched on the dark firmament, rose the Sierra, remote and passionless, crowned with remoter, passionless stars. Ooh. All right. So we're out in the middle of nowhere. There's like one building with candles in it. That's lighting it up, and this guy's about to. De- they're gonna decide if he gets hung or shot or like put in jail or drawn and quartered or whatever they did at the time. I don't know. The trial of Tennessee was conducted as fairly as was consistent with a judge and jury who felt themselves to some extent obliged to justify in their verdict the previous irregularities of arrest and indictment. The law of Sandy Bar was implacable, but not vengeful. The excitement and personal feelings of the chase were over. With Tennessee safe in their hands, they were ready to listen patiently to any defense, which they were already satisfied was insufficient. There being no doubt in their own minds, they were willing to give the prisoner the benefit of any that might exist. Secure in the hypothesis that he ought to be hanged on general principles, they indulged him with more latitude of defense than his reckless hardihood seemed to ask. Oh, that's mean. They're like, yeah, yeah, tell us what happened. We're going to hang you anyway, but... But go ahead and say your piece. We won't stop you. Let's draw this out. It's the most exciting thing that's happened in town in months. (laughs) The judge appeared to be more anxious than the prisoner, who, otherwise unconcerned, evidently took a grim pleasure in the responsibility he had created. (laughs) I don't take any hand in this your game, had been his invariable but good-humored reply to all questions. (laughs) The judge, who was also his captor, for a moment vaguely regretted that he had not shot him on sight that morning, (laughs) but presently dismissed this human weakness as unworthy of the judicial mind. Nevertheless, when there was a tap on the door and it was said that Tennessee's partner was there on behalf of the prisoner, he was admitted at once without question. Uh Uh-oh, he got a lawyer. He lawyered up. Perhaps the younger members of the jury to whom the proceedings were being irksomely thoughtful (laughs) hailed him as a relief. (laughs) I love that they're like in this wild west town and they're like, well, we gotta have trial. Nobody wants to be here and we're gonna totally let this guy like do whatever he wants, but we're going to kill him anyway. But it's trial as entertainment. Yeah. it's Lord knows we've had enough of that recently. Like we, we know what that means. Yep. Um, it's, and 
It's like, we're bored, so we're going to draw this out as much as we can, even though we know the outcome. We know how it's going to, we know how the jury is going to vote. We know what's going to happen, but let's go ahead and let everyone air their shit. Yeah. Still happens today. Oh, yeah. It's not uncommon. Nope. For he was not certainly an imposing figure. Short and stout, with a square face, sunburned into a preternatural redness, clad in a loose duck jumper and trousers streaked and splashed with red soil, his aspect under any circumstances would have been quaint and was now even ridiculous. I don't know what a duck suit is, but now all I see is a sunburned chubby guy wearing a duck costume. (laughs) coming into the court like late at night like hey you, you want to look for a picture of a duck jumper what is it i feel like all i'm gonna get is like pictures of baby clothes with ducks on it uh yep the first thing i get is a yellow this cardigan with ducks awesome <laughs> so that's what he's wearing oh, oh and here's one with uh huey dewey and louie uh duck jumper wild west now it's just gonna be like duck hunt with a cowboy hat (laughs) i hope it is oh my god (laughs) uh we've got an ad for wild wild west like the movie the movie uh we have a uh image of donald duck in uh like wild west clothes all right we have mickey mouse a mickey mouse book about the wild west so uh, I don't know what if you know what a duck jumper is, you let us know. All right. In, in my head, it's like a knit cardigan with a duck pattern. Yeah. I mean, that's what comes up. Yeah. But why would he be wearing? That? <laughs> Maybe we'll find out um, to appear even less imposing. <laughs> anyway, so his aspect under any circumstances would have been quaint and was now even ridiculous. As he stooped to deposit at his feet a heavy carpet bag he was carrying, it became obvious from partially developed legends and inscriptions that the material with which his trousers had been patched had been originally intended for a less ambitious covering. Uh, Oh, wait, can they see his ween? Well, he, (laughs) he like ripped a patch from his trousers when he bent over to set down the the bag he was carrying. I hope that exposed his butthole. <laughs> Yet he advanced with great gravity, and after having shaken the hand of each person in the room with labored cordiality, he wiped his serious, perplexed face on a red bandana handkerchief, a shade lighter than his complexion, laid his powerful hand upon the table to steady himself, and thus addressed the judge. Oh, this is going to be great. (laughs) I was passing by, he began by way of an apology, and I thought I'd just step in and see how things was getting with Tennessee there, my partner. It's a hot night. I disremember any such weather before on the bar. He paused a moment, but nobody volunteering any other meteorological recollection, he again had recourse to his pocket handkerchief and for some moments mopped his face diligently. Oh my gosh. He's like, you don't want to talk about the weather? Well, all right, let's get on with the proceedings. Have you anything to say in behalf of the prisoner, said the judge finally. 
that's it, said Tennessee's partner in a tone of relief. I come here as Tennessee's partner, knowing him now for a year, off and on, wet and dry, in luck and out of luck. His ways ain't allers my ways, but there ain't any points in that young man. There aren't any liveliness as he's been up to as I don't know. And you says to me, says you, confidential like, and between man and man, says you, do you know anything in his behalf? And I says to you, says I, confidential like, as between man and man, what should a man know of his partner? Is this all you have to say? asked the judge impatiently, feeling perhaps that a dangerous sympathy of humor was beginning to humanize the court. <laughs> That's so, continued Tennessee's partner. It ain't for me to say anything again him. And now, what's the case? Here's Tennessee wants money, wants it bad, and doesn't like to ask for it of his old partner. Well, what does Tennessee do? He lays for a stranger, and he fetches that stranger. And you lays for him, and you fetches him, and the honors is easy. And... I put it to you, being a fair-minded man, and to you, gentlemen, at all, as fair-minded men, if this isn't so. <laughs> Prisoner, said the judge, interrupting, have you any questions to ask this man? The judge is like, okay, uh, fuck you. Uh, no, no, continued Tennessee's partner hastily. <laughs> I play this here hand alone. To come down to the bedrock, it's just this. Tennessee there has played it pretty rough and expensive like on a stranger and on this here camp. And now, what's the fair thing? Some would say more. Some would say yes. Here's $1,700 in coarse gold and a watch. It's about all my pile. And call it square. Oh, damn. And before a hand could be raised to prevent him, he emptied the contents of the carpet bag upon the table. For a moment, his life was in jeopardy. One or two men sprang to their feet, several hands groped for hidden weapons, and a suggestion to throw him from the window was only overridden by a gesture from the judge. Tennessee laughed. And apparently oblivious of the excitement, Tennessee's partner improved the opportunity to mop his face again with his handkerchief. <laughs> oh my god, I love this guy. When order was restored and the man was made to understand by the use of forcible figures and rhetoric that Tennessee's offense could not be condoned by money, his face took a more serious and sanguinary hue. And those who were nearest him noticed that his rough hand trembled slightly on the table. He hesitated a moment as he slowly returned the gold to the carpet bag, as if he had not yet entirely caught the elevated sense of justice which swayed the tribunal, and was perplexed with the belief that he had not offered enough. Then he turned to the judge and saying, this here is a lone hand, played alone and without my partner. 
He bowed to the jury and was about to withdraw when the judge called him back. If you have anything to say to Tennessee, you had better say it now. For the first time that evening, the eyes of the prisoner and his strange advocate met. Tennessee smiled, showed his white teeth, and saying, Euclid, old man, held out his hand. Tennessee's partner took it in his own, saying, I just dropped in as I was passing to see how things was getting on, let the hand passively fall, and adding that it was a warm night, again mopped his face with his handkerchief, and without another word, withdrew. Okay. The two men never again met each other alive. For the unparalleled insult of a bribe offered to Judge Lynch, who whether Oh, his name's Judge Lynch? That's not good. Nope. (laughs) That's like going to a dentist called Dr. Payne. (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) Jesus. Who you got? Judge Lynch. Oh, sorry. (laughs) That ain't gonna end well. Nope. (laughs) For the unparalleled insult of a bribe offered to Judge Lynch, who, whether bigoted, weak, or narrow, was at least incorruptible, firmly fixed in the mind of that mythical personage any wavering determination of Tennessee's fate. And at the break of day, he was marched closely guarded to meet it at the top of Marley's Hill. How he met it, how cool he was, how he refused to say anything, how perfect were the arrangements of the committee, were all duly reported with the addition of a warning moral and example to all future evildoers in The Red Dog Clarion by its editor, who was present, and to whose vigorous English I cheerfully refer the reader. (laughs) But the beauty of that midsummer morning, the blessed amity of earth and air and sky, the awakened life of the free woods and hills, the joyous renewal and promise of nature, and above all, the infinite serenity that thrilled through each was not reported as not being a part of the social lesson. And yet, when the weak and foolish deed was done, and a life with its possibilities and responsibilities had passed out of the misshapen thing that dangled between earth and sky, the birds sang, the flowers bloomed, the sun shone as cheerily as before, and possibly the red dog clarion was right. Tennessee's partner was not in the group that surrounded the ominous tree. But as they turned to disperse, attention was drawn to the singular appearance of a motionless donkey cart halted at the side of the road. As they approached, they at once recognized the venerable Jenny and the two-wheeled cart as property of Tennessee's partner, used by him in carrying dirt from his claim and a few paces distant, the owner of the equipage himself, sitting under a buckeye tree, wiping the perspiration from his glowing face. In answer to an inquiry, he said he had come for the body of the deceased, if it was all the same to the committee. He didn't wish to hurry anything. He could wait. 
He was not working that day, and when the gentlemen were done with the deceased, he would take him. If there was any present, he added, in his simple, serious way, as would care to join me at the funeral, they can come. Oh, he wants to bury his friend. Perhaps it was from a sense of humor, which I have already intimated was a feature of Sandy Barr. Perhaps it was from something even better than that. But two-thirds of the loungers accepted the invitation at once. Oh, damn! It was noon when the body of Tennessee was delivered into the hands of his partner. As the cart drew up to the fatal tree, we noticed that it contained a rough oblong box, apparently made from a section of sluicing. Sluicing? Yeah. Wash or rinse? Nope. Look for sluice a Sluicing mining. There you go. Oh, another hand method involves the use of a sluice box. This is a sturdy rectangular box, nearly always built of lumber with an open top and a bottom roughened by a set of riffles. So it's when you see people panning for gold. Yeah. That's essentially what they're doing. They're sluicing. Sweet. So this coffin that he brought was made of panels of a sluice box. Great. Yep. Apparently made from a section of sluicing and half filled with bark and the tassels of pine. The cart was further decorated with slips of willow and made fragrant with buckeye blossoms. When the body was deposited in the box, Tennessee's partner drew over it a piece of tarred canvas and gravely mounted the narrow seat in front with his feet upon the shafts, urging the little donkey forward. The equipage moved slowly on at the decorous pace which was habitual with Jenny, even under less solemn circumstances. The men, half curiously, half jestingly, but all good-humoredly, strolled along beside the cart, some in advance, some a little in the rear of the homely catafalca. Catafalca. <laughs> Coffin? Cat of lacquer. Catafalk or catafalque is a decorated wooden framework supporting the coffin of a distinguished person during a funeral hmm. or while lying in state. All right. So it's like the the beer and or the hearse. Yeah. Cool. The men, half curiously, half jestingly, but all good-humoredly, strolled along beside the cart, some in advance, some a little in the rear of the homely catafalque. But whether from the narrowing of the road or some present sense of decorum, as the cart passed on, the company fell to the rear in couples, keeping step and otherwise assuming the external show of a formal procession. Jack Folensby, who had at the outset played a funeral march in dumb show upon an imaginary trombone, desisted from a lack of sympathy and appreciation, not having, perhaps, your true humorous capacity to be content with the enjoyment of his own fun. Oh my god, these people suck. Yep. (laughs) Assholes. The way led through Grizzly Canyon by this time clothed in funereal drapery and shadows. 
the redwoods, burying their moccasin feet in the red soil, stood in file along the track, trailing an uncouth benediction from their bending boughs upon the passing bier. A hare, surprised into helpless inactivity, sat upright and pulsating in the ferns by the roadside as the cortege went by. Squirrels hastened to gain a secure outlook from higher boughs, and the blue jays, spreading their wings, fluttered before them like outriders until the outskirts of Sandy Bar were reached and the solitary cabin of Tennessee's partner. This is like all the animals that are all around us right now. Yep. <laughs> like we have a family of blue jays over there. There's a family of rabbits behind us and the squirrels everywhere. Like and horses and donkeys and stuff. It's like, okay. Yeah. Viewed under more favorable circumstances, it would not have been a cheerful place. The unpicturesque sight, the rude and unlovely outlines, the unsavory details which distinguish the nest building of the California miner were all here with the dreariness of decay superadded. A few paces from the cabin, there was a rough enclosure, which, in the brief days of Tennessee's partner's matrimonial felicity, had been used as a garden, but was now <laughs> overgrown with fern. Back when I had a wife before he ran off with my partner and then ran off with another guy, I had a nice garden. But I'm assuming they're going to bury him in this garden. Bury him in the garden? <laughs> As we approached it, we were surprised to find that what we had taken for a recent attempt at cultivation was the broken soil about an open grave. Oh, he'd already dug the grave. Yeah. The cart was halted before the enclosure, and rejecting the offers of assistance with the same air of simple self-reliance he had displayed throughout, Tennessee's partner lifted the rough coffin on his back and deposited it unaided within the shallow grave. Well, Tennessee's partner is strong as fuck. <laughs> he then nailed down the board, which served as a lid, and mounting a little mound of earth beside it, took off his hat and slowly mopped his face with his handkerchief. This, the crowd felt, was a preliminary to speech, and they disposed themselves variously on stumps and boulders and sat expectant. They're like, uh-oh. He's going to start talking again, and that's never good. When a man, began Tennessee's partner slowly, has been running free all day, what's the natural thing for him to do? Why to come home? If he ain't in a condition to go home, what can his best friend do? Why bring him home? And here's Tennessee has been run free, and we brings him home from his wandering. He paused and picked up a fragment of quartz, rubbed it thoughtfully on his sleeve, and went on. It ain't the first time that I've packed him on my back, as you see me now. That ain't the first time that I brought him to this here cabin when he couldn't help himself. It ain't the first time that I and Jenny have waited for him on yon hill and picked him up and so fetched him home when he couldn't speak and didn't know me. And now that it's the last time, why... He paused and rubbed the quartz gently on his sleeve. You see, 
is sort of rough on his partner. And now, gentlemen, he added abruptly, picking up his long-handled shovel, the funeral's over, and my thanks and Tennessee's thanks to you for your trouble. Resisting any proffers of assistance, he began to fill in the grave, turning his back upon the crowd that, after a few moments' hesitation, gradually withdrew. As they crossed the little ridge that hid Sandy Bar from view, some, looking back, thought they could see Tennessee's partner, his work done, sitting upon the grave, his shovel between his knees, and his face buried in his red bandana handkerchief. But it was argued by others that you couldn't tell his face from his handkerchief at that distance, and this point remained undecided. I was waiting for him to take that shovel and like beat them Start all to death, people. honestly. <laughs> In the reaction that followed the feverish excitement of that day, Tennessee's partner was not forgotten. A secret investigation had cleared him of any complicity in Tennessee's guilt and left only a suspicion of his general sanity. <laughs> oh, no. Sandy Barr made a point of calling on him and proffering various uncouth but well-meant kindnesses. But from that day, his rude health and great strength seemed visibly to decline, and when the rainy season fairly set in and the tiny grass blades were beginning to peep from the rocky mound above Tennessee's grave, he took to his bed. Um, I feel like this story's the, like, inspiration for Brokeback Mountain or something. I very well could be. <laughs> like, partner, and, you know, they shared their wife because neither one of them really cared about her. Uh, yeah, I mean... And now he's dying because his friend died. Yeah. Like, yeah. One night, when the pines beside the cabin were swaying in the storm and trailing their slender fingers above the roof and the roar and rush of the swollen river were heard below, Tennessee's partner lifted his head from the pillow, saying, It is time to go for Tennessee. I must put Jenny in the cart and would have risen from his bed but for the restraint of his attendant. Struggling, he still pursued his singular fancy. There now, steady, Jenny. Steady, old girl. How dark it is. Look out for the ruts, and look out for him too, old gal. Sometimes, you know, when he's blind drunk, he drops down right in the trail. Keep on straight up to the pine, onto the top of the hill. There. Told you so. There he is, coming this way, too, all by himself, sober, and his face is shining. Tennessee! Partner! And so they met. unexpected yeah that was a, that was that was a touching one yeah well it started out real redonkulous like so like yeehaw wild west and like and then you had the courtroom scene where this guy walks in and dumps a bunch of money on a table and is like talking in circles and then you find out they're just like bestest friends yeah. and partners I liked that. Yeah, that was a sweet one. They met at the end. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm kind of. I, I was waiting for him to beat the shit out of people with this. <laughs> yeah, I did. There was there was a part of me, and I think it's um the part of me that has read entirely too many short stories in the um the sort of supernatural murder mystery mm-hmm. vein yeah. that was waiting for the twist. What I was waiting for freaking uh, Tennessee to come out of the to coffin out of the and coffin. like with guns and shit, like. Somehow when they shook hands in the courtroom, he like gave him something to like, you know, keep him alive yeah. or like, you know. <laughs> but that's just because we've yeah. we've read too much like Agatha Christie and MR James yep. and Yep. Uh <laughs> uh yeah, I was I was waiting for the twists and I was like, Oh, they're they're just it's just his best friend. Yeah. It's it's left me feeling somewhat melancholy. Yeah, I'm a little melancholy. Um but yeah, all right, Bret Hart. Thank you, sir. That was good. Yeah, screw you, Mark Twain. <laughs> yeah, what a dick. What a dick. <laughs> Sorry, Mark Twain. We'll probably read something by you soon. Eventually. Odds are. Odds are we'll hit him eventually. But he is kind of a twat. Yeah, he really did have some nasty things to say about people. Yeah. <laughs> He's definitely one of the... Wait. Is he actually the one responsible for the quote, if you don't have anything nice to say, come sit next to me? I would not be surprised. <laughs> that sounds like something he would say. Ah, no. So the uh, that quote has been attributed to um, a couple of different people. It's one of those. Um, one of them being Dorothy Parker. Okay. One of them being Alice Roosevelt Longworth, who was the daughter of President uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Okay. Um, so it's been it's been attributed to several people, but it definitely seems to encapsulate that sounds like Mark Twain's attitude. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like something Mark Twain would say. Uh, <laughs> there was a good quote by Bret Hart that I loved. Um, was it him saying something douchey about Mark Twain? Because no, I'd be all on board for that. It wasn't. <laughs> he also had great mutton chops, this guy. <laughs> I'll put a picture up. A bird in the hand is a certainty, but a bird in the bush... May sing. Isn't that cool? I like that. As I can hear the birds singing outside. Yeah. Yeah. This dude this dude had a way with words. I like I like the way he writes. Yeah. So, listeners, what'd you think about that one? If you have gotten this far and decide to email us the secret password this week, I think the secret password is a bird in the bush. A bird in the bush. (laughs) So uh send us that. A bird in the bush. And uh, go ahead and since you're listening and you're probably somewhere where you can do it, give us a like, give us a subscribe, write us a review. Please. Especially on any of the like the big Google podcasts, Apple podcasts, any of the the, the big ones because that helps us become more visible. Share us with some friends because if everyone actually, if, if everyone who listened actually shared with five people and like one of those 300 people who it was shared with listened every week that by the end of 52 weeks that's 52 new listeners yeah so so please do give us give us a like give us a subscribe give us a share write us a review and give us love and send us a message that says a bird in the bush bird in the bush and you can do that on email twitter facebook instagram wherever you want to we are there and we love you And tell someone you love them. Tell someone tell, you love tell them. Tell your friends you love them. Yeah. That's all. Someone who you don't always say it to. Yeah. 
I think we were all really good at that beginning of quarantine because things were really rough and like, you know. Yeah. But now as we're coming out of it and people are very ah, like uh, it seems like a lot of people are very on edge and like, you know, nervous about the world. Make sure you tell the people you love them. Yeah. Anything else? That's it. All right. Go check out Insanely Retro. Insanely Dangerous, dangerous. Retro Pod Show. Yeah. Go do that. Do that thing. Uh, do the thing. So that has been us. Until next week, this is Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your show. I'm Jenny. 